You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, uh, those of you who have been here a while, you know my story. Um, that I grew up on the street, uh, Sesame Street. Elmo got me through a lot, man. <laughs> Bert and Ernie are my boys. No, those of you who know my story know I grew up as a follower of Islam. And uh, from the time I was like 6 to 11, I spent every Friday going to the mosque, listening to the Quran be taught from an imam, which is a Muslim pastor, preach, preacher, prayed five times a day facing Mecca. I would carry my prayer mat from my dad's house to my home, and I would pray at my mom, because my parents were divorced. So uh, I would even pray in the home of my, my non-Muslim mother. I fasted during Ramadan. And uh, I, I was all in on Islam. And uh, at the time, when I was about nine or ten years old, while I was a follower of Islam, living at my mom's house, uh, my mom, who was divorced again, was dating a guy whose name was uh, Rick. And if your mom has a boyfriend, I feel like his name is probably Rick. It just sounds like... <laughs> or Steve, you know? If your name is Rick or Steve, you're probably dating someone's mom right now. It's just... Those are the most mom-boyfriend... Like, Rick. Ugh, you know? <laughs> well, Rick lived up to his name because... Uh, he, was, he was a character. When I say character, that's a euphemism for not a great guy. Um, he was a, he was, I saw him every day almost. Um, he, was, he was nice in some ways, but he, he was addicted to porn. I found all this out later. Um, had, I, this, this might be TMI, but we're at RCC. We like to keep things real. He had an STD. He was a sex addict. And... Um, yeah, he just didn't have his life together. I, if you're a single mom, you know, it's, it's tough out here. Like, the dating pool is not very deep. And so my mom, who was very lonely, very tired, and a little too forgiving, kept dating this guy. Even when, I remember, one of the most searing memories I have as a child is waking up to a loud bang and running down the stairs and seeing that Rick had just proposed to my mom in our living room, and my mom said no, and so he punched a hole in our wall. And I got in between my mom and Rick, and he just left. So we didn't love Rick. And can I, <laughs> we were just singing this song, and I was just, I don't know, I was losing a little bit. Can I just tell you, like, something wild? I wouldn't be here right now talking to you if it weren't for Rick. Let's just like, let that settle on our, on our minds right now. That is just a wild thought. I would not be here, I would not be a pastor, I would not be a Christian if it weren't for Rick. Why? Because Rick, as messed up as he was, casually attended a church. And some of the worst people I know casually attended church, but he went to a church. And he brought my mom with me, and because I was with my mom on Sundays, I had to go, and I went to this church in Germantown, Maryland, and I refused to go into the kids' classroom. I would sit outside like this. I'm a Muslim. I'm not going to do this. And then, oh, you have goldfish? All right, I'll come in for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Apple juice, too. All right, I'll stay. I don't mind. You know, like, RCC kids, man, I'm just, we're just <laughs> wooing people to Jesus with the goldfish and the applesauce and the crackers. Um, and I heard this story about Zacchaeus, right? And I heard Jesus... Uh, is the true friend that we need, unlike any other friend. Because Zacchaeus was lonely. Jesus pursued him and, and went, had dinner with Zacchaeus. And Jesus wants to be your friend, even when no one else wants to be your friend. Uh, and I was like, well, I, w I want a friend. And, you know, uh, then someone gave me the Jesus film. And I, uh, like as an 11 or 12-year-old kid with my mom on a Friday night, prayed a prayer at the end of that film to receive Christ. And then the rest is history. But it is, it, the wild thought, again, is that it was at the invitation of an STD-riddled STD porn addict who punched a hole in my wall 
that I came to know Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that got the whole ball rolling for me. Why, why am I sharing this? Because this is an example, just one example in my life. We, we could spend the rest of the day talking about your life. This is one example of what's called God's providence. It's providence. I titled the sermon this morning, The Power of Providence. What is providence? Well, it's a theological term that's no longer used in the common American vernacular or vocabulary. If you go back 100, 200 years, you'll see that word everywhere. Providence, everywhere. And I'm not talking about a quaint little town in Rhode Island that's nice in the fall. I'm talking about God's providence. In fact, uh, you'll see it particularly in our founding fathers' vocabulary. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, George Washington, and others. You know, Benjamin Franklin as debaucherous as he was, wrote an essay in 1732 entitled, On the Providence of God in the Government of the World. And in the article or essay, Franklin appeals to Americans to pray for God's favor upon our nation, his protection upon our nation. One of the first words of the Treaty of Paris, you know, the treaty right after the Revolutionary War, are the words, divine providence. What does providence mean that our founding fathers use so often? Well, providence is really a combination of four other attributes of God. His sovereignty, his predestination, his wisdom, and his goodness. His sovereignty, meaning he is in absolute control. His predestination, meaning he is in charge of how everything turns out, every minute detail. His wisdom, he makes no mistakes. And his goodness, he has our best interests at heart. Put those together in a pot, turn it up to 300 degrees, you got providence. He is in charge in your life of what happens, when it happens, how it happens, why it happens, and even what happens after it happens. This is true of all events in every place from the beginning of time. He does this for our good and his glory. He is not the author of sin, yet he uses sin and evil for his purposes. He does not violate our free will. We are free to choose as we please, but his, our free will even serves his purposes. We're not supposed to understand all this, but we are supposed to believe it. That's providence. And really, the word providence is the combination of two English words, pro and video. Pro, a prefix meaning beforehand, Video meaning to see. So if you put the two together, providence is beforehand see. God sees everything before it happens. He's got a plan. He has foresight. The way R.C. Sproul put it is, God doesn't roll dice. Even the Proverbs say he sets the dice to how he wants them. I love the way Spurgeon said it. Spurgeon said, fate is blind, but providence has eyes. Oh, that's a comforting thought. Fate is blind, but providence, it has eyes. Now, though providence literally means beforehand see or to have foresight, theologians make a distinction between the foreknowledge of God and the providence of God. Providence covers significantly more ground than foreknowledge. Providence means to see a need and provide for it. Providence isn't just God seeing, it's God doing. His eyes see all, but his hand also controls all. And the Heidelberg Catechism describes the providence of God as the almighty, everywhere, present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that the herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yeah. I don't know why they said, yeah. This is interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those theologians, man, they just get excited. Yeah. <laughs> All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does all this mean? It means... Providence means God is never a spectator in your life. He is always the orchestrator. He's never in the audience. He's always on the stage with the wand. And the wand is directing everything towards his final plan. God did not force my mom to date Rick. He did not even approve of my mom dating Rick, but he did use it. And the first time we see this word providence in the Bible is in Genesis 22, 
in the narrative of, of Abraham offering up his son, his one son, Isaac, on the altar, his chosen son given to him as a blessing, God called Abraham to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac, on this mountain, and obviously Abraham anguished under a great internal struggle with God's command to sacrifice his, his son. And as Abraham prepared to obey and sacrifice Isaac, Isaac asked Abraham, his father, Behold, the fire and the wood is here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac didn't know he was being sacrificed. And Abraham, knowing that Isaac was the sacrifice, says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham is here for the first time in the Bible, says the word providence or provide. He's speaking of God who is the provider, a Jehovah Jireh. And what this means is that God has orchestrated all of Abraham's life from him calling him out of the city of Ur to this new land, giving him a son out of against all odds at 90 years old, and then leading him to a mountain in the worst moment of his life where he has to sacrifice his son. And Abraham says, God will provide. He has providence. And of course, God provides a lamb who is the, the provision of the sacrifice. And this, points, this passage points to the ultimate provision he has made for us by seeing us in our sin, intervening, and weaving all of history by his divine sovereignty to provide for us Christ who saves us from our sin. He is the Lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf. And so I, I'm, I'm giving all this to you as a background as we weave through the text. And you need to have some context of providence if you're going to understand Exodus 1. And providence is all throughout the Bible. You just don't see it in Genesis. You also see it in the Psalms where... Uh, David says, the, the Lord has made heaven his throne from there. He rules everything. Daniel 4, it says, all the peoples of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does, God does, as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him in his plan. Proverbs 16, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. James says, Beware of boasting about tomorrow because God may change your plans for tomorrow. Colossians 1, this is a wild verse. God says in him, or Paul says in him, all things hold together. And just think about the fabric of the universe. Every single thing in existence is held together by his power. And then just finally, final reference on this. Matthew 10, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sowed for a penny? And not one of those sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And if you really want to see providence throughout the Bible, just type in the words in your Bible word search, I will. God saying, I will. And if you look it up, you will quickly lose count and quickly bow down. God says, I will, in the book of Jeremiah, 256 times. One book. And so God really wants us to know about his providence. He really wants us to know he's in absolute control of every detail of your life right now. There's not one thing that he's like, oh, I forgot about that thing. And we see providence as we enter into the book of Exodus. In fact, we, we get to the book of Exodus because of providence. Because at the very end of Genesis, the last chapter, chapter 37, there's a guy named Joseph who's had a, a horrible lot in life. If Joseph lived in Baltimore, he'd have jury duty twice a year, at least. <laughs> and he'd be selected. Because this guy is sold into slavery by his brothers. He then finds himself in Egypt, and he's accused falsely of trying to rape a powerful, woman's, a powerful man's wife. And even though he's innocent, he's thrown in jail. It's a rot. And then somehow, God weaves it together where he becomes the second in command and the strongest nation in the world, Egypt. He becomes the COO of Egypt. And the last words of Genesis, before we get to the book of Exodus, the words that are supposed to be ringing in our ears as we read this book are Joseph saying to his brothers that stabbed him in the back, that hurt him, that ripped his life apart, that ruined his life. Joseph says to them, as we enter into Exodus, what you meant for evil, what? God meant it for good. 
providence. It's called providence. God saw Joseph. He provided. He planned. He used Joseph's brother's free decision of evil. He overcame it, overruled it, and somehow did good through it. Now Joseph is second command in Egypt, and the only reason Israel is even surviving as a nation during a famine is because Joseph was in charge, and he said, hey, Israel, come to me in Egypt. I'll house you, I'll feed you, I'll take care of you. Pretty cool evidence of God's providence there. And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 1, seeing God having weaved history for his purposes. Somehow through a brother's betrayal, we're here. And as we jump in, really, there's only one point I have for this this morning. Here's the one point. God is working out a plan in your life. He is working out a plan for your life. And that plan, built on His promises and protected by His providence, rarely turns out the way we think it's going to. He has a plan. It's built on His promise, protected by His providence, And it's probably not going to turn out the way you thought it should. We jump in and we see in verse 5 that the sons of Israel, Joseph's nation, entered Egypt with 70 people. That's a pretty small nation. Not very intimidating. But then they grew. And they grew. They lived out God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And they have a ton of kids. A ton. Like if you think God doesn't like sex, read Exodus 1. God affirms sex all the way. Just do it with your wife. And they have all kinds of kids. And pretty soon, Egypt is swarming with all these Israelites throughout Egypt. And Joseph, the number two in Egypt, dies. And this new Pharaoh comes to power. And he gets worried because, wow, this nation of 70 just suddenly grew to be a lot more people. And they're a threat. And so Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with these Israelites and so what does he do? He makes Israel his slaves. Notice the language here. Just the difficulty of the life of the people of Israel in Exodus 1. Pharaoh, verse 11, afflicted them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, Israel became oppressed. Verse 13, Egypt was ruthless towards them. Verse 14, Egypt made God's people's life bitter with hard service. How's that for God's people? How would you like your life to be described as afflicted with heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthless, and bitter with hard service? That's the lot of God's people in Exodus 1. Now, why doesn't Pharaoh just kill them? They're a threat, just get rid of them. Well, because he needs them for his construction projects. Verse 11, he wants Israel to build the great cities of Pithom and Ramses, which is not a small task. But he doesn't need all of them, right? So he goes Nazi Germany. Verses 15 and 16, Pharaoh issues a statewide genocide. He tells all the midwives, which are basically the nurses of that time, kill every newborn baby boy. So we can shut down the growth of this nation that's, that's growing. I mean, it's easier to read over this and not consider what it'd be like to live during this time. I mean, imagine the sense of fear this would create. To have your newborn baby boy stolen from your arms and murdered in front of you. Imagine being pregnant at this time. And there's no ultrasound, so you don't know what you're going to have. And as you're giving birth, you're going through this agonizing pain of giving birth to this baby, and you're just begging God, God, make it a girl, make it a girl, make it a girl, make it a girl, only to see it's a son, and he's murdered in front of you. The future of Israel, the future of each family is being stuffed out. I cannot think of a worse situation than this. Slaves with dead sons. Well, the heroes of chapter 1 are the nurses. Anyone here a nurse? Would you just do me a favor? Raise your hand if you're in the medical professional field. Raise your hand if you're a medical professional to some degree. Raise your hand high. Be proud. Raise your hand high. That is a lot of people, I think. Yeah, that's a good amount of people. I always say RCC is the safest place in Baltimore to be because you've got like 17 different types of doctors. You have a heart attack? Oh, there's 17 people that can save you. Um, I have this really big sore, you know, back here. Uh, No, we're not going to do that. Well, the heroes of this chapter are the medical professionals. 
in the, the godly medical professionals. These two nurses who are like head nurses of Israel intervene. And this is actually, I think, the first act of civil disobedience in the Bible. They don't listen to the Pharaoh, the king. Notice for this Exodus, verses 17 and 21, that these midwives feared God. So they may have feared the king, but they feared the king more. And Pharaoh quickly realizes that because these midwives are avoiding killing Israel's sons, that Israel's sons are not being killed. And he calls the midwives before him and says, why are you not obeying my order? Why have you done this? How are these sons surviving? And I think their response is hilarious. The, the midwives respond, these, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous, man. They're vigorous. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. Praise the Lord for vigorous women. Where would we be without vigorous women? Like the midwives were like, man, we're trying to kill these babies, but by the time we get there, before we can even say push, they're already gone. <laughs> but too fast. And verse 20 says, because the midwives did this, God dealt well with them. He blessed them. He approved of this act. And what's wild is if you think about this circumstance of events, because of these midwives' civil disobedience and their integrity, we have a Savior. Because if there's no Moses, there's no Exodus. If there's no Exodus, there's no David and the nation of Israel. If there's no David, there's no sons of David. If there's no sons of David, there's no Mary. If there's no Mary, there's no Jesus. I just want to challenge you, especially those of you in the medical professional field, there are a lot of ethical situations you face that are unprecedented where you might have to decide between what's commanded and what's right. Well, these midwives chose what's right and God dealt well with them. He was good to them. He was pleased with them. And notice, these two women, you see their names. We know their names, but we don't see the name of Pharaoh anywhere in the text. And Pharaoh was obsessed with his name being known. He built pyramids and, and cities for his fame. He enshrined himself with, in a sarcophagus with his wives and his gold so people would remember who he is. Yet the only names remembered in this text are the names of those who feared God and obeyed him above man. Your integrity, it might cost you your career, but don't let it cost you your calling. You want your name remembered you want to make an internal difference, serve your creator over your company. And it will work out well for you in the end. That's what they do. And if you find yourself, friend, cutting corners at work, cheating, slightly breaking God's law to succeed, that's when you know you've been bought. Your career has become your idol. It's become your God. You love it more than you love him. Well, these nurses might not have gotten a promotion to Hopkins, but they did get this internal promotion, a godly commendation. Verse 21, God blesses them with families, he says. But Pharaoh obviously is furious at this. He says, that's it. I'm not trusting you guys to do the job anymore. I'm going to do it myself. Verse 22, Pharaoh says, I want every son that is born to the Hebrews cast into the Nile River. This is probably for two reasons, convenience and cowardice. The first reason Pharaoh wants every son thrown into Nile is, is convenience. Because the Nile was an ancient form of a dumpster. Many people lived by the Nile. This, this made cleanup easier rather than, you know, killing his child in front of his mother. Just throw him in the river. And sadly, uh, in our society, we still view child, children as an inconvenience, much like Pharaoh in this text. And we don't throw him in the Nile, we throw him in another dumpster. Our society reflects Pharaoh in a lot of ways here. He, I have a friend who called Child Protective Services because of a child in danger, and another friend who called Animal Control because of an animal in danger in Baltimore City. The Animal Control came out that day. Child Protective Services didn't respond for a couple days. We live in a society that still, in many ways, doesn't value children or at least is overwhelmed with the needs of children and isn't providing the, the support needed to care for them. In many ways, especially in liberal cities like Baltimore, we value dogs more than kids. 
And like Pharaoh, it is common in our society to kill children because of the inconvenience. That's what happens here. So it's convenient, so he throws them in the Nile. Second reason he throws them in the Nile is cowardice. The, the Nile was viewed as a god. That, so therefore, it shifted the blame. It wasn't Pharaoh who was killing them. It was the Nile who was killing them. The, uh, it was thought as the giver and taker of life. And the Egyptians may have thought that they were just doing the will of God, the gods by throwing them, appeasing the gods by throwing these children into the Nile. And so again, here we are in a horrible situation for the people of God. If you are, if you are in the church and you're in Exodus 1 right now, your lot in life stinks. You're thinking, where are you, God? Why are we being treated ruthlessly? You led us here and we're slaves with our sons killed. Didn't you promise to our ancestor Abraham, didn't you make a covenant with him that our nation would be as numerous as the stars, that you would bless all nations through us? Well, if that's going to happen, you probably need to do something. You probably need to get Pharaoh off our back. And yet, here we are, a small nation, enslaved by a superpower, with no sons. You ever been there on your Christian walk? Just laying yourself before the Lord and saying, this stinks. How are you going to get yourself out of this one, God? You ever have something that's ripping apart your life? Like a rick? Or a, a parent that's disappointed in you? Or a constant pain on, in your body that just won't leave you and you can't even live like you used to anymore? Or a loneliness that's so deep it, it's haunting you? A child taken from you or a child not given to you. A job that is ruthless on you right now. You feel like a slave. You feel paid like one. And you look up at the sky screaming, where are you, God? Didn't you promise that goodness and mercy will chase after me all the days of my life? Didn't you promise that you would hold me in your hand? Didn't you promise that you would take care of all my needs according to the riches of your glory in Christ Jesus? Didn't you promise? That's kind of what we prayed in Psalm 142 a few moments ago. It's a, a psalm of complaint. It's a lament. Commentators uh, label Psalm 74, God, where are you? Where the psalmist says, God, we don't see any signs of you anywhere. Everything around us is falling apart. We have no profit, and we have no idea when it's going to end. You, you actually struggle to find a book in the Bible where God's people aren't saying some version of this. Where are you? What's going on? I thought you had a plan. Abraham said, God, I know you have a plan. You want to make me the father of many sons, but I'm 90 years old, and I got no son. Then you give him a son, and you ask me to sacrifice it. And then Abraham's family from that son, becomes a train wreck. Like, ineligible to be cast on the Jersey Shore train wreck. I know, it's bad. And yet Abraham dies, clutching to this promise that was not fulfilled, that, that his nation, his, his children would become a, a nation as numerous as the stars, and then his grandson dies, clutching that same promise yet to be fulfilled. And then Jacob's son, Joseph, dies. He goes to prison, and then he dies, clutching that same promise, and here we are with the people of Israel, wondering the same thing, enslaved, sons killed. Where are you, God? I thought you had a plan. What's going on? And here's what I want to show you. Here's what I want to comfort you with. God's providence is stronger than the world's brokenness. There are a lot of people who call themselves deists, and they think God exists, but he's an observer. That if the universe were a car, God built the car, he started the engine, and he just let it loose. He doesn't interfere with the affairs of man. And in fact, I think a lot of Christians live that way. They pray that way. That God is just there, but he's not there. You know what I mean? That's why many don't prioritize him or fast. That's why many don't put the church as a priority in their life. That's why they're casual with sin. Because many people think God is just an observer. At best, maybe he's a sympathizer. But the Bible wants to make abundantly clear to, the, to you through Exodus 1 that God is working out a plan in your life, and that plan, built on his promises, protected by his providence, will come to fruition, though it will rarely play out the way you think it should. 
Israel enters Egypt with 70 men, enslaved, oppressed, murdered. And we, what we find just 12 chapters later in Exodus chapter 12 is Israel leaves Egypt through the Exodus with 600,000 men. We got a nation of 70 with murdered sons, embittered and enslaved, and they leave just 12 chapters later with 600,000 men. We're not even counting women and children. I mean, with women and children, scholars estimate that's between 2.5 to 3.5 million people. And they don't just leave empty-handed. They leave carrying all of Egypt's stuff, all their gold. And you go from chapter 1 to chapter 12, and you think, what the heck just happened? God's providence happened. God had a plan. He made a promise, and it worked out in a way no one thought it would. And here's what I want to talk about in a really honest way with you. Life is really difficult and confusing. And loving the Lord in the midst of it all can get confusing. There are times where it's been really hard for me to reconcile that God is good and He is present and He has a plan in my life. It's just hard for me. Because in that season, I just can't believe that. I've been on my basement floor at times weeping, just crying out to God saying, I cannot imagine a scenario where this works out well for me. You ever been there? Like, there's no way this is going to work out. I was there a lot as a teenager, a little bit less so now, but I was still there a lot. And here's the answer to that, God's providence. God has made a promise to you, if you're a Christian, in Christ Jesus, that all who are in him will have an exodus. And whatever twist or turn you find yourself in, he is going to set you free, and he's going to hand you gold, and he's going to get you to the promised land, and he's going to provide for you. W.A. Criswell says that God's providence is a lot like the flow of the Mississippi River. You might ask the schoolboy from Mississippi, which way does the Mississippi River flow? And that schoolboy will say, from north to south. But if you actually go to the Mississippi River, there are times and places where the Mississippi River is going north. There are times where it's going west or east, like complete opposite directions of where it's supposed to go. But every Mississippi child knows the river, though it may at times flow north or south or east, it ultimately and finally will flow south. And so it is with the elective purposes of God in Christ Jesus. They may at times seem frustrated or turned or twisted, but God's promises always flow towards the consummation of his kingdom ruling and reigning in this world. And Christian, for you, what this means is that your life is always flowing towards Christ Jesus. Though at times there are twists and turns, he's going to get you there. And I just want to leave you with, if that's true, I want to leave you with two applications, two realities that hopefully will give, uh, give you something to walk away with. If this is true, then you can have patience in your affliction right now, and you can have a certain hope for your uncertain future. Let's start with number one. The main application of this is if this is true, you can have patience in affliction. Those who believe in the providence of God can rest in God's purposes for their afflictions. Because they understand that God is much more interested in my holiness than he is interested in my comfort. And each affliction that we face, whether it's Exodus 1 or whatever it is you're facing, it must first go through the sovereign hand of God and be allowed by him, and be used to train his child up to mature holiness. The mature Christian says like the psalmist in Psalm 119, I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. You are good and you only do good. Teach me your decrees. My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. You see, many people want to be courageous like David was courageous, but they don't want to face the Goliath that builds up their courage. Many people want to be patient like Hannah was patient, but don't want to wait in the barrenness that Hannah waited in to make her patient. Many people want to be a peacemaker like Joseph was in Genesis 47, but they don't want the conflict and the forgiveness required of the brothers to develop them into a peacemaker. If you want diamonds in your soul, you need pressure. You need challenge. 
And it is in the puddle of our own tears where all is faint and all seems lost. When we are in our own Exodus chapter 1 with Pharaoh throwing our sons in the Nile River that we learn, really learn, to trust God is who he says he is. God's providence is like the dawn at the earliest point of the morning. Where though we cannot see the sun now, we can trust his providence is coming like it has always come for us. It has always made its way to be seen by us. Exodus, our Exodus 12 is coming, and he is worthy of our faith even when he doesn't give us what we want right now. Even if you find yourself right now in what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, where he says God seems to withdraw on all feelings of his presence, where all the joy you once had in being called his child is now gone, where all the hope that once surrounded your life feels feel so distant, even in that moment, we can trust, we can be patient that we will come out of ex- ex- Egypt like Israel in Exodus, knowing that the bitterness of our sorrows is far outweighed by the sweetness of God's purposes. We can say like David in Psalm 56, that God, you didn't even waste one of my tears. Sam Rutherford says, when I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. And maybe you're at a point in your life where you disagree with whatever affliction you're facing in this very moment. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. Whatever challenge that God has put in your life. Maybe you would say, this is too much to handle, God. Maybe you would say, I'm getting impatient, God. Maybe you find yourself at a place of bitterness before God. Can I encourage you with the words of the Apostle Peter? He says, humble yourself. Recognize that you're not God, basically. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, cast all your anxieties on him because what? He actually cares for you. He's doing this because he cares for you. No one is so fit to govern your life in this world as the one who made it. And so we can be patient in our affliction knowing it's for a greater purpose, to make us mature in Christ. I mean, did you know the story of this church is the story of patience and affliction leading to promise? You know, when I first started, uh, was hoping to start RCC, it was just me and my wife. I was praying, God, provide for me a partner pastor, anyone to plant with. And I looked everywhere for a partner pastor. I couldn't find anyone. And then I finally found someone, and then last moment, he dropped out. And it was playing basketball at a pickup gym in a seminary gymnasium where I dislocated my finger and I had done it before, so I pulled it and popped it back into place. And Adam Wilson saw it, and he was like. <laughs> and he thought, I could plant a church with that guy. <laughs> and it was through a dislocated finger that we ended up planting a church. The only reason we are in this building right now, and the only reason we own it, and we don't have to set, up, set it up and tear it down and bring all these chairs down to the basement floor, is because of a pandemic. Because commercial prices sunk the cost of... Uh, the, the pandemic sunk the cost of commercial real estate so we could raise money to buy this building. Uh, Andrew uh, Garner, the guy who preached a couple weeks ago, he's our church planning resident. The only reason he's here is because he moved here to be part of a coffee shop that failed. That's the only reason he's here. Josh Dello, our ch- children's director, our city kids director, he's here because of a church split in Texas. Eric McCoster, the guy who led worship, he's our director of worship. He's here because he visited a church in Raleigh the same week I was preaching. And he didn't even hear my sermon. He was, I think he was in the lobby hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> my point is, couldn't we not look at everything in our life and say, like, how did we get here? And wasn't it through a bunch of crap? I think if God's providence were a country song, it'd be Rascal Flatts. God bless the broken road. You know that song? I love that song. Every long lost stream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, they were like northern stars. Oh, I messed that up. Pointing me on my way into your loving arms. This much I know is true. 
God bless the broken road that led me straight. There you go. You notice how I went country and I suddenly was on key? <laughs> Maybe you don't like old school country. You know, Zach Bryan, his new album. So take me down a road that's a little, uh, a little bit windy. You know that song? That's for you millennials or, or Gen Z. But essentially, couldn't we all this, say the same thing looking back? The road has been a bit windy. The road has been a bit broken. I bet if you really thought about it, some of the best stuff in your life is a result of God giving you what you didn't want at that time. Giving you affliction you didn't want. I'm looking, there's a couple in here that are married, and the guy was like, I don't think she should be a member of our church when she, when she was coming to check us out. And, and God used that to bring them together. And now they're married. I mean, just it, it's crazy to me. He's done that in my life so many times. Therefore, if that is all true, if God does bless the broken road that leads us to him, if the road is a little bit windy, we can be patient when it is windy. Here's a quote that will change your life if you understand it. John Newton says, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. If you understand this, this will wreck and, and, and reshape your life. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. Put another way, God always chooses for his people better than they could choose for themselves. If you have been handed a heavy affliction, there is need for it. If you have been withheld something you desperately want more than life itself, it is better that you do not have it at this time or ever. And here's why this matters. Here's why this gives you a gospel chill. Because there is nothing you can do to me or take from me that God has not already declared will be ultimately for my good. I can be in Exodus 1 childless as a slave. It's for my good and for his purposes. And Exodus 12 is coming. Therefore, I can be patient in my affliction. I'm going to be leaving this country with all your gold. Free. With a bunch of sons. I got three. And if that's true, we can be like the child on board a ship who remained peaceful while wind and waves raged around him. When the child was asked how he kept calm in such a violent storm, he replied, my father is the captain. He's the captain. How much more can the church sing Psalm 46? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea. The Puritan B.B. Warfield says, A firm faith in the providence of God is the solution of all earthly ills. If that's too fancy and Puritan for you, the providence of God is like having a star in Super Mario. You become untouchable and you reach the end of the level. And so... Just to close your point, this point, this application of being patient in affliction. If you find yourself right now in an Exodus 1 season and you are doubting, uh, let me encourage you with the words of Charles Spurgeon. God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Trust his heart, friend. When you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. And how do we trust his heart? By looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. When we see the darkest event in human history, where the innocent son of God was slain by the creatures he created. On that day, it looked darker than ever. It looked like evil had won. It was Exodus 1 of Exodus 1's. Yet peeking out from the darkness was the dawn. Where the son of God ripped open a grave. And shine forth, promising you and I, we will resurrect like he resurrected. And all of the Exodus chapter 1's in our life, all the ones we went through, will just be past chapters in our story that had led us down this broken, windy road to him. Like a man with an STD somehow led me to meet Jesus. And if that's true, we can be patient in our affliction, we can trust him. Second and final application, I'm going to land the plane on this. 
Not only can you be patient in affliction, but you can have a certain hope for an uncertain future. God has a plan, and it's not going to work out the way I think it will, but it's going to work out. One of my favorite parts of the Harry Potter series, you've had like 10 years, so I'm going to ruin it for you, okay? <laughs> but at the end of the series, Harry meets, um, finally realizes that this guy Snape, who he thought was against him the whole time, actually, in the background, was saving him the whole time. In the forest and in potions class, and even before Voldemort, Snape had his back when he thought Snape was his enemy. And Harry looks back at his life and realizes this man that he thought was so against him was the one who was actually protecting him. And I know you don't have a Professor Snape in your life, but you have a Christ. Who, when you reach the end of the story, you will think, all of these moments in my life were actually Christ moving and weaving and protecting, and you will see the whole story. I want you to imagine for a moment if God this morning were to hand you the final chapter of your life, and that final chapter of your life, it said, and he and she lived happily ever after. What if at the final, you knew for a certain fact, God handed you the final chapter of your eternity, of your life, and it said, all things turned out for good. And what happened next after that was so great and so beautiful that it couldn't even be written down on a page. And at last, as C.S. Lewis says, the real story began. The story that goes on forever, the story in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Imagine if someone handed you your story and that was the end. Would that give you some hope? You see, providence gives us that hope for this unknown future. And this obviously doesn't mean life isn't hard. Exodus 1 is hard. Slavery is hard. Having your sons murdered is hard. But we're not crushed because we have this last chapter. The Heidelberg Catechism, again, speaking on providence, encourages us to place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father. If you read that in the original language in the Dutch, it literally means have a good expectation of our faithful God and Father. Christian, do you have a good expectation of your future? Are you just whining about the present? The hand of our God rules the world and no one can stop it from and his purposes from being fulfilled. You are in the hands of the Creator, and there is no safer place in the world. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? We got Him. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? It is going to be distress, or peril, or the sword, or persecution, or suffering, or sickness, or human hostility. No, these are all clay in the potter's hand. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Paul glories in the certain outcome of God's providence. And the reality is, friend, that the doctrine of providence also implies that the opposite is true. If God is against you, who can help you? Nothing in all creation can shield you from the wrath of God if you continue in your sins and refuse to receive His Son with a broken-hearted faith. If you are, this morning, an unrepentant sinner, not trusting in Christ, you are an enemy of the God of providence. You do not trust Him, but deeply resent Him and worship created things over Him. You proudly are relying on yourself rather than seeking His grace in prayer. You don't surrender to him in thankfulness, though every day you breathe his air and drink his water. And if you do not repent of your sin and turn to the one way, Christ, then he will take all common good away from you and use his sovereign power not to provide and look out for you, but to punish you forever. But if you would come to him this morning in your brokenness, he will move the universe by his providence to turn all things good for you. Today, God is working through the brokenness of this world to proclaim his gospel so that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ and calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And could it be, unchristian, non-Christian, that God's providence arranged for you to come here this morning at this gathering in a way only he could so that you could then be converted and follow this Christ? And if you are not yet saved from your sin, then recognize that you are not here by accident. God is speaking to you. Like the Mississippi River, he has worked everything to get you here so you can hear this message. By God's grace, turn from your sin. 
Turn from the hopes in which you formerly relied upon and turn to Christ. And then rejoice because if you are in Christ by his providence, all things will work out good for you who love him. And in all our afflictions, on our way to glory, through Exodus 1, on our way to Exodus 12, we can say, like Paul, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And I just want to end with this poem called, He Maketh No Mistake. It says, My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad I know. He maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But still I'll trust my Lord to lead. For he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break. I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so quick to doubt that you have a plan. We are quick to complain, but not quick to believe. Help us to trust in your providence today. Whatever is ailing us this morning, whatever is ailing us, ailing, uh, has hurt us for a season or for years, God, help us to throw it on to you and trust you that you maketh no mistake. That we can be patient in affliction because you are using this to make us more like Christ. And we can be hopeful of a future, an Exodus 12 for us, where you would deliver us either in this life or the life to come from what ails us now. And I pray for the non-Christian in the room, God, you by your providence have weaved their story to this very moment. There's not a mistake they're here. I pray anyone who has not fully thrown themselves upon the mercies of Christ, who paid for their sin on the cross and handed... Uh, them his righteousness, I pray that they would trust in that Christ this morning. And in all things, God, we say we trust you, we love you, we cherish you, and we'll keep treasuring you and following you, even in the Exodus 1s, knowing Exodus 12 is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.